Welcome to episode 185, Fostering Resilience Against Suicide, Helping Clients Build Lives Worth Living, featuring Jessica Gifford, Licensed Independent Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am excited today to be joined again by Jessica Gifford. She is a licensed independent clinical social worker, and she joined us previously in a discussion about social connection and its impact on mental well-being. And today she's joined us for a conversation about not only suicide and suicidality, but the preventative element of like, how do we, as she says, put, you know, put a client in a position to have a life worth living, where we never get to a, a thought about suicide. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. So before we dive into this topic, um, why don't you, again, remind our listeners about yourself and your background and how you came to really dive into this work about not just suicide prevention, but specifically like social connection and its impact on our mental wellness. Sure. So I am a social worker and um, started out doing clinical work and and burnt out. (laughs) I got more into the preventative field. So that's like the thumbnail version. Um, In terms of suicide prevention, Like many people, uh, I think many clinicians choose their area of expertise because it's something that affects them personally. And this is something that um, impacted me personally. Uh, I lost my father to suicide when I was a teenager. And um, obviously that, that really turned my life upside down. And I think one of the ways that I tried to process grief was really trying to make sense of it. And it can be a really unfathomable thing, really hard to wrap, um, wrap my head around. And so I think I, I really started to try to understand suicide and suicidality uh, more, but also even from the very beginning, I was more interested in why, um, like what makes people want to live despite everything <laughs> as opposed to what makes people want to die. So my, my master's thesis in social work school was, um, was called learning to live with oneself with a really long subtitle. Um, but essentially it was, um, I interviewed, uh, I think 12 people who had lived through a suicidal crisis. And I was really trying to learn what helped them get through it, what made them choose to ultimately live and what was helpful. And actually, you know, uh, social connection was one of the the biggest themes that, that came out of that. And since then, there's just been tons of research showing that that social connection protects against suicide, as well as making basically all aspects of our lives better. So, so in more recent years, probably I, I would say the last, um, definitely the last three years, I've, I've uh, opened my own business, um, really focused on working with schools, colleges, and businesses around building connection. Um, so I've really been, I've really kind of chosen to double down on connection as a protective factor 
for mental health, but also just for, for happiness. Your work is really upstream versus what is so often downstream in conversations about suicide. And my brain automatically goes, as I'm sure other clinicians may, to a safety plan, you know, and the stuff that we're like, these boxes we're supposed to check that even the research has generally disproven is effective, but we're still doing it. And it's, this is a scary topic for clinicians to talk about because the odds of us having a client die by suicide are not insignificant. Um, and that pressure for clinicians, I think, can seem overwhelming. And I appreciate your perspective, which is basically we can, we could create systems and insulation from this risk by doing what we're already doing kind of therapeutically, yeah. by building social connection, by, by evaluating this as a prevention and early intervention perspective instead of reactionary. You had just to throw it out there, before we started recording, you told me about an article you've just seen in the New York Times. Before we start recording, will you please share that? And as we record, you're currently uh, in May of 2023. Yes. Yeah, so um, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, just, uh, there's an article in the New York Times that he wrote, but he, he just released an 80-page report, um, essentially naming rebuilding social connection as a national public health priority, which is very exciting to me, obviously, that it's getting attention. And um, he, he really highlights the impact of loneliness in a number of areas, physical health, mental health, you know, work, education, all, all spheres of life, and includes recommendations for building stronger connection in our, in our communities, as individuals and in workplaces, and so on. So that, that was really exciting to me. When you said that there was a word that jumped out to me, which was rebuilding. Re yeah, he says rebuilding. rebuilding. He says rebuilding. So I guess, you know, when you do look at the long, uh, kind of the longer term trajectory around social connection in this country, um, there definitely have been times that that uh, there's been stronger levels of connection, but it has been on the decline for, I don't want to, but decades um, definitely decades and, and more sharply in the last two decades, but probably has been declining for the last 50 years. So loneliness has been increasing, um, connection, involvement in social, uh, in, you know, different, different social activities has been declining. More people are living alone um, and so on. So, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting too, the rebuilding. It, it, it jumped out. It jumped out at me because I always say building connection when I'm talking about it. But if we look right. way back, we see that it was there, and then we <laughs> lost it, and now we're rebuilding it. <laughs> but I think many people, you know, especially younger people, haven't necessarily experienced genuine connection um, or. Uh, Aren't, aren't really satisfied with the level of connection in their lives. So they might not be able to relate to a word like rebuilding for them. It's kind of creating from, from, from scratch. Can we start there in this conversation? Can you kind of paint the picture in terms of the research, the demographics, what we're talking about here with suicide and how social connection kind of layers over on top of that? 
Yes. So in terms of suicide, um, suicide rates generally are measured by the number of suicides per year out of 100,000. So if you look back to 2020, um, the number was 10.4 out of 100,000 people committed suicide in the U.S. that year. In 2021, that was 14.1 out of 100,000. So it went from 10 to 14 in in 20 years, and that's a 36% increase. And so, you know, 14 out of 100,000 might not feel like that might not feel like that's a big number. In terms of raw numbers, that's 48,000 people in 2021. Um, and there's, there's not data yet for 2022. So for young people, 10 to 34, it hovers around the second leading cause of death, sometimes the third, um, but, but often it's the second leading cause of death. And in uh, the U.S. overall, it's the 10th leading cause of death. And, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about suicide rates, but the impact is much bigger than that because for every completed suicide, there's 250 people who have seriously considered suicide within the last year. So that's, that's a lot. Um, and I was recently reading, uh, there was a study of high school students. And so 9% of high school students which is one out of every 11 uh, made a suicide attempt within the last year. So that, that to me is really scary that, that it's that high. And there's definitely certain, certain populations, certain communities that are at higher risk. Um, LGBT students are four times more likely to make a suicide attempt. And with, with what's happening politically, I think we're going to see increases in states that are coming out with blatantly transphobic discriminatory practices. So, um, yeah. So the other, other populations that are at higher risk include um, veterans, Native American and indigenous communities, rural communities, and actually elderly people. So even though, um, kind of talking about youth being at high risk, the rates of suicide have increased more in the young population. So it's been like a sharper, a sharper incline, but um, adults above 75 are the most likely to commit suicide. Does that make sense? How I'm differentiating It does make sense. One thing I'm curious about, if we can jaunt over into it, talk to me about the language around suicide. So, we historically used the term committed suicide. Now there's the introduction of the idea that committed implies that it was a you know, a criminal act. As someone who studies this, how do you feel about the use of language and the way that we're describing the act of ending one's life? So when, when I was actually doing research for my senior thesis, which was back in 2000, um, the language that they used for a completed suicide was successfully completed, which to me, there's nothing successful about, about suicide. Um, and so, so 
I, I don't see that language now. So I'm glad that that has changed. Um, I haven't really thought, I guess I use the, the language completed versus attempted, um, but I, I hadn't really thought through committed. I haven't, I haven't heard um, kind of dialogue about that. So that's, that's something that's interesting to think about. Thank you. I, I was talking with another colleague who does a lot of suicide prevention training, and she and I were talking about it in this idea of the languaging around suicide as a verb that someone suicided, like this is the interesting use of language. And I think for any of us, we're in a world where language is continuing, continually evolving. And then for us to, to do our best to stay up to date on something like successfully completed which is to me sounds like a very odd way to, yeah, that's to really say that strange way and uh, just off the top of my head i think commit to me commit implies um sort of forethought and planning which definitely is sometimes the case but also there's many suicides that are more impulsive and so i think completed or suicided is is maybe more accurate. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Thank you for kind of going over into the languaging around it. So as you mentioned, we have certain groups that right now are at higher risk of dying by suicide than other groups. Then you throw in COVID-19. We've seen an increase in reported depression, anxiety, you know, an increase on college campuses of suicidal thinking, things like that. How do you, as someone who looks at this breakdown, that research and seeing these increases in the last couple of years, do you attribute that just to the pandemic? How are you kind of breaking down that data? So, so actually, when you look over the past 20 years, it was a steady increase in completed suicides from 2000 to 2018. And then there was actually a slight drop in 2019 and 2020. Um, And then it it actually has started increasing again. Um, It increased again in 2021. And so I did see some um, data that was released really early in the pandemic in the first few months that that showed a, a big increase in suicidal ideation. And so it's interesting that there was an increase in ideation and yet a decrease in actual suicides in just in that two year, um, 2019 and 2020 window. I do think sometimes times of crisis can um, kind of change people's focus a little bit. It can, it can pull people together or it can kind of distract. There's so much external crisis going on or so much um, different kind of crisis going on that, that, that maybe that could uh, partially explain why there was that dip. But then 2021, it, it sort of rebounded. I'm anticipating when the 2022 data comes out that, we're going to see a continued increase because um, some of the predictors of of depression and suicidality include social isolation and connection. And obviously that is something that took a huge hit, um, a huge hit during the pandemic. And so uh, we know that, that, that depression, you know, with depression and loneliness, it's a little bit of a, a chicken and egg because depression um, can definitely cause 
social withdrawal and increased loneliness. And at the same time, there's research that says that loneliness predicts future depression. And so loneliness is causing depression, but depression is also causing loneliness. It's both, both and. Um, yeah, so, so I think it would not be at all surprising if we see continued increase because the impacts of the pandemic are going to last for a long time. They're, they're not like, oh, we're back in person. Everything's back to normal. Yay. <laughs> I, I think uh, I work a lot with, with colleges and definitely um, schools and colleges. I, I just heard from so many people that students are back, but that they're really struggling with increased social anxiety, with disengagement, with withdrawal and things like that. And so... Um, I just hear more and more about about people, in particular young people, struggling with how to make connection. As we're talking about this, I've noticed that most of the research that you've been mentioning has been specific to the United States. Are there any, if you know, are there any worldwide trends relating to these things over the last few decades or particularly related to the last few years? Yes. So um, definitely the other other kind of westernized countries like the UK, Australia have very similar, um, Canada have similar trends. Um, There was one international study looking at high school students and it it looked at, I believe, 30 different countries and saw a huge spike in loneliness from... um, 2012 to, I think, maybe 2018 or 2019 was when the study was done. So that, um, so yeah, so, so that's showing that this isn't just the U.S. It's really, it's really everywhere. Uh, although I, I do think there are some cultures that are doing better on connection than we are, but um, this particular study was looking at high school age and it was it was kind of theorizing about the impact of of social media and technology um and was also linking that to a kind of a parallel spike in in depression over that same time period that element of it i mean the the irony and we talked about it in the social connection episode as well but the irony about this complete increase in the sense of being connected yes. and exposure and arguably technological vulnerability, if you will, like online persona vulnerability, while simultaneously in the data seeing we're actually incredibly disconnected from one another is really disconcerting. And speaking as someone who's worked quite a bit with teens and young adults, seeing that so clearly yeah. of the the friends that are IRL, that are in real life, mm-hmm. you know, versus the friends yeah. that are online. Yeah. And it's been so interesting as someone standing on the outside of that phenomenon who did not grow up with the social media pressures. Um, it had just started into the world when I was in college, you know, so I, I largely was removed from it, but to look at how it shaped social development in younger folks these days is just like nothing else we've seen. Yeah, I think it's it's huge, and I think we're probably going to be learning the impacts for for a number of years to come. But one of the things, I, I mean, I I don't want to completely 
um, negate the value of social media because I think it, it can provide benefit that there are online communities that can provide support and, and um, can provide uh, access and community for people who might otherwise not have found that. So I think there can be value to it, but I think there's also a lot of, a lot of um, harmful impacts. And one of them that I believe contributes to suicidality is I, I really feel like in the last, I don't know, maybe decade or so, there's this combination of having higher expectations for for what's possible or for what our lives should look like versus what they actually do look like. So so social media and media, we we now have like access to the 1%. We can watch the Kardashians and watch the lifestyles the, of the, the rich and famous. Yes, exactly. And we're told, you know, many kids are told like you can be anything you want and that's um I think meant to be an empowering message and it, it can be an empowering message until you're trying to become, you know, the next influencer or the next Jeff Bezos or the next whatever. And it's the next 30 under 30 and it's not happening. And so I think we have higher expectations about being happy, uh, that we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to have these great lives and then maybe less, uh, tolerance and less coping skills for the struggle and for things being messy and for, 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 you know, going through pain or for failure, mistakes, disappointments, and so on. And so I think that combination of high expectations plus maybe like low tolerance for, um, discomfort or things not being the way we want them to be can really contribute to suicidality because people can feel like I'm a failure if I haven't achieved this, this goal. There's actually, um, this, this kind of surprised me when I was looking at suicide data, you would think that the happiest countries in the world would have the lowest suicide rates, but the opposite is actually true. So Scandinavian countries, have the highest rates of happiness in the world, but they have some of the highest rates of suicide as well. So, so possibly people who are really struggling or who are experiencing depression or so on, if they're looking around and everybody else is happy, that can make their experience harder. Um, so I thought, I thought that was interesting, but I think that that, contrast is happening everywhere where we're looking around and we're feeling like we should be having this type of life and we're not should be having this feeling and we're not i think that idea is an important one to think about the visibility of have and have not and i've seen the same thing in the research in the sense that when you were looking at areas where people were geographic areas where people were reporting higher levels of life satisfaction, for example, that that at least the studies that I was seeing was suggesting that in those areas, there was less um, obvious comparison between have and have not that it was like a community that may not even have had very much and had, interestingly, a fair amount of poverty and food insecurity and things like that. And yet they weren't also right next door to a mansion where they're throwing away 
lots and lots of food scraps. And so they're not, it's, it's not like in our faces all the time, but I could see what you're saying about Scandinavian countries that when we are constantly exposed to how our lives should look, mm-hmm. it messes with our sense of self and our confidence. Yeah. And in the era of social media, we have to pretty much continually remind ourselves that what we're seeing is a curated version of somebody's life. And I think that's why, like, at least for me, when I see something on social media where someone says like, this is how I actually look, but if I stand this way in this lighting with the camera here, then it looks like this, like kind of this reminder where it's like, this is all manipulated. Yeah. This is not an accurate representation of this person's appearance or of their happiness level. Like it's really easy for anybody to look happy when they're on a catamaran, like in twinkling green waters, right. you know, like, yes. um, at least I hope so. Um, but so that reminder that I, I think we're inundated with messages about how happy other people are. And when we're not, it's just viscerally painful. And sometimes even when we're telling ourselves that, even when we're sort of scrolling through the feed and telling ourselves this isn't real, you know, this isn't a full representation of their lives. This is a tiny snapshot of a peak moment. I think we can still feel all of the you know, the, the, the fear of missing out feelings, the comparison feelings and so on. Um, so I think even with that knowledge, it can be hard to regulate the impact. Um, and I wanted to get back to something you said earlier about the kind of discrepancies. And so, um, the happier countries have less wealth discrepancies. So they have much better social welfare systems. So they're taking care of their people. You know, they, they, they have a little bit more um, even income distribution. And so countries like the U.S. that have extreme wealth and extreme poverty generally have much lower rates of, of, of happiness, lower, you know, health, you know, just just lower on a lot of measures. Um, and so the, the suicide statistic is a little bit of kind of an outlier in, in the Scandinavian countries. But uh, yeah, the speculation is just that it's, it's, it's hard. if you're really unhappy, it's hard to be in a place where other people are happy. <laughs> Which I think anybody can relate with. Yes. Yeah. In wanting to understand what puts a person at particular risk for dying by suicide or even attempting suicide. For us, if I'm thinking back to like my master's program, for example, like I can in my mind create this list of, well, this person has access to means check, you know, and there are these questions that we're going to answer in order to assess somebody's risk. Can you speak about that kind of checkbox thinking about suicide risk? versus like the actuality of like, here are the things we know really truly put people at risk. Because even I've thought the idea of like someone not having access to means like we always have access to means. Yeah. <laughs> like unless you're, unless you are in a locked room by yourself, even then you still would have access to some kind of means where you could end your own life if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting that we do this checkbox thinking where it's like, okay, this person is insulated. And obviously, you know, things like gun ownership change the numbers. But can can you kind of address some of those check boxes versus the realities of what does suicide risk really look like? Sure. Um, so I, I do think 
you know, I, I do think suicide assessment is important, even though you it, it can't be 100% accurate. So we have to, as clinicians, I think it's really difficult to kind of live with that level of, of risk of like, we don't know, we can't predict a safety plan is not fail proof. Those things aren't fail proof. Um, some of the things that contribute to risk um, are family history of, of suicide, definitely previous suicide attempts. Um, the means is interesting because, like you're saying, we can't, we can't, like we can't prevent people from having access unless they're in a hospital. And even then, sometimes it's sometimes they get access. But but the, there is really interesting research, though, saying that um, pe- people tend to have a plan with a preferred means. And so if that means is restricted, then they're less likely to commit suicide. So, for example, um, if we if there was higher levels of gun control, our suicide rates would absolutely go down, even though people do have access to other means. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge in the past was sort of a prime, you know, it was, it was a location that people chose um, to jump off of. So it was like, a, it was a suicide hotspot. And when they put the, the, not gates, but like the, the fence up that reduced suicides in, in San Francisco. And so, so there is actually evidence that, that reducing access to means can reduce suicides, um, even though people still have access. And there's, there's different, there's um, kind of different levels of risk factor, like some are sort of things that we don't have control over and some are things that we do have control over. Like we don't have control over um, family history or things like, you know, we don't have control over our age. People are, are at a higher risk once they hit 75 and we, we don't have control over that. But other, other things like connection are things that we do have control over. Um, so things like connection, feeling, a sense of meaning and purpose, I think, can also really help give people a reason to live. Like if they feel like they are of value to other people or have a sense of belongingness, um, that can be that can be uh, a, another protective factor. Your work is around upstream interventions, meaning trying to insulate somebody from the thought of, gosh, maybe I would be better off if X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's a major shift from the way that we do things in our general medical system. Like we tend to not be as hot at PEI, prevention, early intervention, (laughs) as we are at reaction. Yes, definitely. Do you find that it's like, a, for lack of a better term, kind of a tough sell from a systems perspective? Um, before you and I were talking, before we were recording, we were talking about the phenomenon, and I, I've seen it as someone that's worked at universities, where it's that something happens, mm-hmm. that there is a yeah. significant incident um, that becomes known to the student body, becomes known in the news, that suddenly it's this, oh, this is something we need to pay attention to. 
is it hard to get traction for the idea of what if what if we did a better job up here instead of getting down mm -hmm. to that point where it becomes a reaction to something that happened instead of trying to prevent it from happening to begin with? Yes, I would say really, really tough sell. I'd say I've kind of been making this argument for, I don't know, 20 20 years, 25 years or something. Um, and I, I, I know you had somebody on another episode who did a beautiful job of describing the difference between upstream and downstream prevention. But for people who aren't familiar with that, um, there's kind of like a a story, you know, to to make it to make it visual of like imagine you are sitting by a stream, or you know, there's a group of clinicians sitting by a stream and enjoying the day and somebody comes floating downstream and they're like waving their arms and like screaming for help. And so you, you run in the river and you pull them out cause they're drowning. And then you feel great cause you saved this person's life. So you saved this person from drowning. And then another person floats downstream and you rescue them. And then more and more people are floating downstream and you're getting, getting exhausted because you're pulling them out of the river. And that I think is where a lot of people in the medical and mental health field are in terms of like just working, working, feeling exhausted, kind of intervening in the crisis moment. And then somebody's like, why don't we go upstream and see why people are getting in the river? <laughs> you know? Like what's making people fall in the river? Like maybe we could get to the direct cause and build a bridge or give them a life jacket or, you know, take them somewhere else or, you know, whatever it is. And so upstream prevention is really looking at addressing core causes and, and preventing that crisis point from ever happening. And our, our medical and our mental health fields, I think, are very much downstream and they're sort of like, wait until symptoms develop and then try to address or manage those symptoms or, or heal the problem, which is much harder and less effective than like, how do we actually help people stay healthy? And so that, that is the work that, that I do. But I think sometimes that work is a lot less visible because it's a lot less visible if you work with somebody and they never even experience suicidal ideation. That's a lot less visible than if you hospitalize someone and pre prevent them from committing suicide. Um, so, so I think it's less visible. Um, it's sometimes like, you know, I'm, I'm so kind of steeped in the prevention focus that I'm sort of like, I don't get it. Like, why aren't we focusing on this? Why is it so hard to get people to wrap their heads around this? And I'm not, you know, I think the, the, the crisis intervention is always going to be important, but I think right now we probably give 90% of our resources to that and 10% to prevention. I'd like to see it be more like 80% to prevention and 20% to, to, um, because you've prevented the need for the yes, downstream rest. Yes. Yeah. Like imagine how much healthier we would all, we would all be. And even financially it would save a ridiculous amount of money in the long term. But I think part of it is just short term short-term thinking because prevention isn't immediate. It takes a longer, it takes longer to yeah, see. It takes time to make traction. Yeah. 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 And it's less, it's less concrete and visible. So.
in thinking about how to even kind of formulate this next question I have, um, I've talked on the podcast before about how I'm a parent. And so I think for me, a lot of teaching for me comes down to a, a parent and or a caregiver and what they're giving to the younger folk in their life. For you as someone who understands these intricacies and the impact of social connection and relationship or loneliness on our risk of dying by suicide or attempting, if you had this little human ball of clay, like what, what would you do? What's your prescription, if you will, to try to prevent that suicide heart disease, if you will, you know, where it's like, well, here are the things like we tell a kid, okay, like your, your plate should have lots of colors of food on it. That's how we keep our eyes healthy and our bones healthy and yada, yada, yada. But so looking at a young person, for example, where it's like, here's how we protect you and the people you care about in your community or your folks from attempting or dying by suicide. What does that look like? Yeah. So um, for me, I think about suicide prevention. I think you mentioned this in the introduction as building lives worth living. And I didn't come up with that line. That's actually a Marsha, Marsha Linehan. Um, That's kind of how she framed working with suicidal individuals. And I, I love that. So I use it. Um, And to me, there's, kind of four really important buckets of what it means to build a life worth living. And so that's, those are kind of the things that I would, would want to focus on with, um, with a child. And the first one, number one is, is connection. No surprise there. We've been talking a lot about that. Um, so, you know, even with young kids, like really encouraging them to socialize and not, not to socialize necessarily in super structured ways, like to let kids just play with each other without necessarily being like you're, you're doing the um, piano lesson or the sport or all of those things, which sports are awesome. Those things are great, but also allowing time for unstructured socialization where they're learning more how to navigate relationships and talk about, you know, workout conflicts and all of that stuff to give them some more organic kind of on the fly social interaction that isn't necessarily like means to an end, like we're learning how to do a backflip the right way. Yes. So structured activities, structured social activities are great. And also I think recently there's a little bit more of a deficit of the unstructured just playtime, um, which also allows for, for creativity, you know, and imagination. The other thing, um, so one of the other buckets I would say is, is a sense of meaning and purpose, which I think even young children can do like by, by helping, you know, by helping out, both helping out at home, but also like, you know, doing some volunteering with kids um, doing things in the community, or even having conversations with them about um, what feels meaningful, what they like, how they feel when they do particular things. Um, and also the, the emotional skills, the emotion regulation skills, which I think a lot of therapies focus on that, you know, CBT, DBT, ACT, all of the, all of the therapies. I would like, you know, if I were to create a therapy, it would be like connection, meaning purpose, um, emotional skills, 
and health. Those were, those are sort of the four buckets, but I think the emotional skills are important because we're, we're all going to experience stresses and some of us definitely have more of a buffer, you know, have more privileges that protect us from that, but nobody's protected completely. And so we're going to experience things and need to have some skills for um, just not being completely devastated by them, by like learning how to accept things being difficult and to get through that and to, um, to kind of manage ourselves and take care of ourselves through that. And then the last bucket health, I think, you know, things like sleep have a huge impact on mental health. Um, and I don't really think we can separate mental and physical health. Like I think we kind of talk about them as separate, but I think they both influence the other. And so taking care of our bodies is taking care of our, our mood um, as well. So those are, so those are the things that I would, you know, work on with a kid or really work out with, with somebody of any age. So again, for our listeners, those four buckets that Jessica just named were connection, meaning and purpose, emotional skills and health. So as you're talking about that, I'm putting it kind of in therapist terms. And there's a, there's a part there for us in each one of those buckets that even just the connection between client and therapist, if I have some place to be, I have someone who cares about me, I have someone who's asking me what happened with that job interview two days ago, you know, that I think many clinicians, myself included, um, I think struggle with the art of therapy. Like it's a really interesting concept that we're talking about um, of sitting with somebody else of like, how do you quantify, how do you put a price on the care and concern and the conscientiousness, but that, you're saying like, this is, this is a primary foundational part of what it means to have a life that's worth living. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you're going to agree that even a paid person could contribute to somebody's sense of connection and contribute to a sense of a life worth living. Absolutely. And even I, I think a lot of people don't have a lot of time to reflect in their lives. So even just asking questions around, meaning and purpose, like what are what are some of the things that you do that, that you get a sense of meaning from? Um, and asking people like, how, how are your friendships? How are you feeling about your the relationships in your life? So just kind of having these pulse points or, or you know, check-ins, um, as well as giving people the opportunity to, to delve in and explore more. And one of the things I like, like I think the the emotion piece, the emotion regulation piece, or like the resiliency um, around going through difficulty. I think that's kind of a primary focus of therapy. What I like about adding in um, connection and meaning and purpose, in particular, are that they have a positive strength strength based focus. And so I think sometimes when we're talking about what we're struggling with, um, we can kind of over identify that with that. Like if we're talking about being depressed, um, we can, or, or a diagnosis, we can become, that can become a big piece of our identity. So like I am depressed as opposed to like, I am a person who's experiencing depression. 
you know, and so I think when you're talking about meaning and purpose or, or, you know, your relationships, positive aspects of your relationships, that helps people flesh out positive parts of their identity. And so that can really help um, create a more positive self-concept um, and, and actually just, just doing some short things like values reflection has been shown to have a big impact on, on depression. So even just having short conversations with people about, um, what they, you know, what they care about in terms of values, in terms of contribution, impact, things like that can, can help them flesh out a more positive identity and can help with, with suicidality. What you're saying is, frankly, so different than that checklist. Yes. Yes. And speaking as someone that has worked with all different levels of care, behavioral health facilities, talking about their initial assessment and things like that, you know, we have a crisis note that's going to be auto-populated in the electronic health record. And part of it is almost always still to this day, created a safety plan with the client, like created a, you know, created a list of five people that the person could call. And what I'm curious, and I know that this is um, opinion based. So listeners, this is me <laughs> asking for Jessica's opinion. When we are already downstream, and we have somebody who is just really fantasizing about things being a lot easier if they just weren't here anymore, like those problems would be solved. What do you grab out of these buckets? because you know all of this research that's not like, let's create a safety plan. Like, well, do you? And what would that, like, what does your safety plan look like when you know all of these buckets and the research that's in these buckets? Yeah. So I think if somebody is actively suicidal, you do have to like ask the questions to be like, is this something, you know, is this something you're thinking about? Cause there's so, you know, as, as I said, for, for every completed suicide, there's, 250 people seriously considering suicide. So there's there's obviously a, a really big um, leap between thinking about suicide and actually um, a- acting on that. Uh, so I think um, so I think you have to kind of ask the questions to gauge the risk. And if the risk is not like oh this person needs to be hospitalized, I think a few things. One is to try to create some distance between the person and their thoughts, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, there's, what is the line of like, just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. You know, I think we sometimes are like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm having these suicidal thoughts. Therefore that means like, I want to commit suicide not necessarily, but also, you know, we're, we're thinking stuff all the time. And so, so kind of trying to help people practice some disengagement from their thoughts and create some distance. Um, I think mindfulness practices help do that, help people learn to observe their thoughts without feeling like they are their thoughts. Um, there is interesting, some interesting research around talking to yourself in the third person, creating some distance. So instead of being like, I feel suicidal, being like, Jessica's feeling suicidal right now. 
And so that could sound really weird. <laughs> you just broke my brain a little bit. I've never heard yeah, that. That's very interesting. Weird. So this is something that people with social anxiety has been shown to be really helpful with people with social anxiety as well. Instead of being like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. Saying like, Jessica's so anxious. Or even like, Jessica's got this. Like encouraging yourself in the third person. So it, it just creates some emotional distance. And I know it sounds weird. It's but really interesting. It could be, be like, don't necessarily talk out loud when you're saying, when you're talking to yourself in the third person, because people will think you're. That's a whole nother assessment. That's, that's a whole nother assessment. <laughs> um, I was actually listening to a podcast who's the, the person said that this technique has really saved his relationship with his wife when he's angry, when they're in a conflict. He says, the me is angry to himself, which is even weirder than saying your name. But he, he swears that it creates enough distance that he's then able to sort of back off of the anger and have a conversation. So that's one strategy is sort of giving people some practices to disengage. So that even if they're having suicidal thoughts, that it's like, okay, you know, they're happening. And it's okay. Like, it doesn't mean I have to act on it. You were going to say something before I talk. About Just it. that your, um, your example there about how you would say it or how this other person was saying it to themselves. For me, it rings a bell of act in I'm noticing that I'm telling myself that the same idea of distancing ourselves from that automatic thought where it's like, this is me, this is my reality, this is just what is and creating just that slight level of space. But it's, it's such an interesting intervention. But then going back to those buckets, that is about ultimately, I think, identifying meaning and purpose, as you were saying, kind of going back to our values and like how we're conceptualizing our lived experience. Yeah. So, so yeah. So like mindfulness is similar where you're observing your thoughts. So there's like one meditation of imagining your thoughts kind of like floating on a leaf on the stream or a cloud in the sky or things like that. So, so, so those are other ways to disengage with your thoughts. Um, and I think helping people, helping people think about meaning and purpose, um, that can be hard if they feel like, oh, I don't have any, I don't have anything. But even uh, people might not feel like they have meaning and purpose, but everybody has values. And so looking at values, like what's important to you. And there's lists of values that you can download um, from, you know, you could just Google it online and, and uh, the motivational interviewing has lists of values and, and things to be used in motivational interviewing. So, so those are available, like looking, looking through those, but like, you know, asking people, asking people a question like, what has stopped you? Like what has prevented you from acting on this? Are there things that you're currently living for? Is there anything that you're feeling hopeful about? Um, really trying to, um, you know, trying to leverage relationships. I think that can be hard when somebody is in deep depression because they can have really distorted thinking around their relationships and uh, can feel very burdensome. Um, but, uh, you know, asking, asking about the people who care about them. Um, and also like, I would say encouraging them 
to be helpful to somebody else because of that piece of burdensomeness of feeling like I'm such a drain, I'm such a drag to be around. Like, is there something that they can do? Like, even if it's a small thing, like five minutes a week. Yeah. Like where you're offering something to somebody, you're like reaching out and checking in with somebody else or you're, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, helping somebody move, helping somebody, you know, with a meal, something that might feel really effortful to somebody who's depressed, but starting, starting incrementally to really try to get them focused more on action and less on introspection, but also focused on things that are going to make them feel like a better person, if that makes sense, like to, to start to start feeling like they are valuable. There's um, James Clear. So completely out of the field of suicide prevention, but basically he's saying your every action you take is kind of a bid. It's, it's, it's kind of like we learn about ourselves through our actions. Like that's how we form our opinions of ourselves. And so I think we, in, in therapy um, and in lots of fields of life, we spend a lot of effort trying to change the way that we think. And sometimes it can be easier to change your action. So like doing something small that then it's like, oh, like that's something a, a good person would do. <laughs> you know, that's somebody, that's something that somebody I respect would do. And then you start to have a higher opinion of yourself. And so encouraging people and helping them really define what that is, like what that small action can be. Because I, again, when you're depressed, you're sort of, it's difficult to plan things. It's difficult to really even think clearly to sort of, sort of say like, and Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm going to, you know, go grocery shopping for my neighbor who just had surgery. Um, you know, so whatever it is, but helping them sort of think through it. Um, so that they're they feel like they're offering things of value. So those are those are the, some of the things that I would say. And going back to the checklist, because you 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 were talking about the the safety checklist, like the kind of checklist I would like to see. And I, I kind of got excited about this whole Surgeon General's report because I'm like maybe the maybe doctors are now going to ask people about their relationships, like. Instead of just the checklist of do you smoke, like how much do you smoke, how much do you drink, how much are you exercising, which they do they ask that? I'm not, I don't even know if they ask about exercise. Okay. Many do, now they do. Okay. So, like, also asking, like, yeah, what, you know, how satisfied are you with your relationships? Like, putting that into the checklist. How, you know, just like asking some questions about, quality of life, how satisfied they are with their lives. Do they have anything that gives them a sense of meaning and purpose? So, so sort of having those things on the, on the assessment, as well as all of the usual stuff. I think your concept of kind of borrowing the language from Marsha Linehan in the idea of creating a life worth living, if we're looking at those four buckets, I think it changes the perspective 
because it actually lends weight to the idea. And this is not to minimize anybody's lived experience or depression or their suicidal ideation or anything like that, but that all of these things matter to our sense of self and our way as we walk around the world. And that even the little things that could seem so insignificant can really make a difference. When's the last time you had a good night's sleep? Yes. When's the last time that you went on a walk with a friend or had a phone call, you know, like that, that I think sometimes we get, I know for myself, it's easy to get kind of in my head about like operationalizing. Well, here are the things we have to do. Um, but forgetting kind of that core of what it means to be human and that there are small things we can do to nurture that, to just simply reconnect us with our own humanity that could ultimately be a step toward health and a step away from suicide risk. Yes. And I think it also provides people with more options. So, so people who are, you know, maybe going to therapy for depression and they're doing cognitive behavioral work and they're struggling with it, like, then it's like, okay, and you can also try this. So not, not that you need to focus on all four things at once and be great at all of them, but they're, they're different avenues. They're different ways in like, you know, uh, so if it's, if you're struggling with negative, critical, pessimistic thoughts, and you're, you're trying to, to challenge them, or you're trying these other strategies that, that um, aren't helping you, then what about focusing on meaning and purpose? What about focusing on connection? What about, you know, what about exercising more? You know, so, so I think it's just a little bit more of a holistic perspective. And there's things that some people are going to be more drawn to and that are going to work better for them. Like um, some people are mindfulness is the thing that has changed their the life. And all. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, I'm like, that's awesome. I fully believe in all of the research about mindfulness and all of its benefits. And I am not a meditator. Like I just can't really do it. Uh, but I love journaling and journaling, um, journaling. There's, there's amazing research about, the mental health benefits of journaling with some specific prompts. So that's another thing you could do with somebody who's, who is um, suicidal in that, you know, kind of in that, in that conversation um, is rather than kind of let's do the safety plan. Like let's do, let's do a couple of journal prompts, you know, could be like thinking about what you're grateful for or like, finding something that went well this week or um did you make anybody smile this week or just like little things you can provide different journal prompts for to get people in the habit of writing um which you know kind of accesses a different part of your brain than than verbal stuff and can help uh, help people again like to kind of reshape their identity how they make sense of things. I agree with you that I think this idea of viewing it from a more holistic lens is an important one. And I think it also can maybe redistribute some of the pr pressure that clinicians feel where it's like, well, I did all the things, you know, I did all of the things in that one book and that cert certification I have, and it didn't work. So like, 
lost cause. And I'm like, what do I do now? And it's like, no, there's actually a lot in that toolbox. We just need to remember it's a much more diverse toolbox than we're giving ourselves and humanity the credit for. And that's kind of like my takeaway from this conversation is like to zoom out and look at all of these factors that are intersecting to create a life worth living. So how do we then try to influence that on our couches with our clients, with ourselves, with our families, with our loved ones to contribute to that? Um, There's obviously so much more that can be said on this topic, Jessica. Thank you for kind of scratching the surface and introducing some of these ideas because this is such a hard thing for anybody to talk about and certainly for clinicians who've been touched by it in one way or another, it's hard for us to talk about suicide. It's, it's, um, it's very scary for anybody and it's obviously a devastating phenomenon. Um, for folks who want to learn more about you and about your work, what are the best ways to do that? So the best way is my website, which is projectconnect-us.com. And that uh, kind of shares a little bit about my work. I, I work, um, my work, I, I've sort of chosen to focus solely on the connection bucket um, because I feel like it's it's really needed and there's not a lot of other people doing that. And so for people who are interested, I've created a program called Project Connect, which is basically a small group um, six session program that that helps facilitate relationship building and make it easier and kind of take the pressure off of individuals to kind of figure out like, how do I make friends? How do I build connection? Um, so for people who are interested in becoming facilitators of that, they can, they can check out the information on my site or feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is on there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. People can find me there too. Awesome. Thank you again. Um, it's it's through folks like you that have read a lot of the studies that help the other folks go, oh, goodness, thank you for relaying that in like such a edible way so that I can use that information. So thank you for coming here and kind of cracking open the library in your brain so that we can learn from it. Because I, I think the ideas that you've introduced today are very important ones for us all to keep in mind of what a life worth living looks like, what creating worthwhile existence is all about. And I really appreciate the idea of getting out of the reaction-based mindset and getting into uh, uh, insulation for wholeness, for wellness. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to to kind of share these ideas um, with your audience and to, to, as you said, to kind of like try to shift the balance um, between upstream and upstream and downstream. So thank you for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.